welcome to Charity Chats. I'm your host, Samuel Davies. In this episode, we speak to Hannah Kaplan, a content manager specializing in video and digital storytelling. We speak about what makes a good video and the tips and tricks that charities can use, no matter what their budget, to tell their stories. We talk about how stories are key in supporting a charity's beneficiaries, and this is a theme that you will recognize if you have listened to other podcasts, most notably episode 79, The Donor Experience, 66, Visual Storytelling, 51, Cases for Support, and 21, Storytelling. Hannah's experience and expertise in video and digital storytelling is fascinating, and despite her deep knowledge of the technical aspects of video making, there is a lot here for happy amateurs like me, or small charities perhaps, starting out with no budget. We still find ourselves in the midst of the coronavirus crisis, and the future is very uncertain and a little scary. Perhaps video storytelling will feature more heavily. Anyway, without further ado, here is Hannah Kaplan speaking to me about tips for video. joined today by Hannah Kaplan, content manager for Spanner, specializing in video and digital storytelling. Hannah, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, what is your background and how did you get into producing video content for charities? Right, well, I guess it's um, kind of a circuitous route. Um, as you can tell from my accent, I, I'm from the States and I came over here uh, for my undergrad. So I did an undergrad uh, at St. Andrews for sustainable development um, and kind of knew that was generally where I wanted to go, but knew I needed hands-on experience. And um, throughout all my studies and in my 20s, I watched documentaries, kind of consumed them voraciously. So there are a couple of films that had a big impact on me, like The Cove and Food Inc. And, and a lot of those documentaries kind of uh, captured a lot of the issues I was passionate about, but in a way that was very accessible. So, um, you know, when you say you want to work in charities, that's a big remit. And it can be everything from the finance department to fundraising to comms. But I, I knew for me it was the fun, the creative side was in finding ways to get people to sit up and listen to what was an important issue. Um, so I really wanted to develop those tools. And I, I think there's a real challenge sometimes is that, you know, you have the theoretical background, but then what are the technical tools that people actually need for getting from A to B? Um, so I spent a couple of years working in countries like India and Madagascar on the ground in um, development projects, conservation projects. And then I thought, right, I need to go back and actually get a better understanding. So I, um, I did an MA at LSE in London, uh, London School of Economics on um, digital uh, communications for in, uh, international development. Um, and came out of that and thought, well, I still don't know how to make a film. So what do I need to do to actually figure out the nitty gritty? I think I used some of my savings and bought Final Cut Pro on my, my computer and just start playing around with that. And I start to volunteer my free time for nonprofits to sort of um, what every millennial refers to as a side hustle, um, but actually just doing it for free for building a portfolio of films. Um, and then simultaneously, I was just 
geeking out all the time on digital skills, so web analytics, um, YouTube videos. Um, so it's been about 10 years in the making. Um, and I think some people go and do like a traditional film degree. And I think they probably have a much better grounding of the, the physics and the technical kind of background to it. But for me, it was like, um, I really like this effect in filmmaking. How do I replicate it? And just researching it. There's a lot you can do online. Um, and so for the last four and a half, five years, I've been with Spana as their content manager, um, overseeing all film production. We've made hundreds and hundreds of films at this point. Um, so it's just myself and my colleague uh, who work in the content team. So uh, we provide all the films for all the departments, fundraising, comms, advocacy. Um, and it's kind of a Pandora's box. I mean, I find filmmaking, the more I know, the more I realize how much I don't know. So I, I missed that point where I thought I was confident enough to produce a film and, and completely missed half of the technical skills. You know, I now think I have a lot more appreciation for people who work in the sector because it takes decades and decades of just working and just learning. Um, so you can be as broad as producer, commissioning and all that, all the way down to someone who's just a real specialist in something that takes, I have a lot of respect for, you know, color grading or sound engineering, that in itself is an entire career. Um, so for me, it's I'm more of a generalist. Um, I really love film, but I also kind of uh, consider it a medium for communicating the bigger message. So I think um, I don't necessarily do filmmaking for filmmaking's sake. I think I like it as kind of a, a, a tool for getting people excited and actually seeing some turnaround in terms of behavioral change, possibly, you know, donations. But as an advocacy tool, I think it's it's probably we're visual creatures and it's the most visual medium we have. And I, I suppose also now throw in the uh, re reduced, potentially reduced attention span that people seem to have. Certainly I yeah. seem to have, when I'm looking at content, the idea of a, a short, sharp video is much more appealing to me than uh, sometimes having to read a, a document or something. Absolutely. And it's a, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because sometimes, you know, if you're a policy researcher and you put together a policy document, there's a reason it's 100 pages long. There's a lot of nuance that needs to be captured. And I find there's always a challenge in communications and filmmaking to not bulldoze the entire messaging, but I think it's really, I, every film I produce, I'm trying to think, okay, if you know nothing about this organization and presumably there's a million other pieces of content you're getting every day bombarding you, what is the essence of what I'm trying to say to you and why is this important? And it's, um, it is, I'm not sure that anyone ever gets to the point where they're totally confident in this, but how do you really, um, it's using the same skills that I think a lot of brands use to kind of get a um, USP for their product. You know, what are we here for? What do we do? How can you summarize? And then there's another strain of filmmaking that's really about how do we delve deeper into these issues in an educational way that is still pithy and still, you know, you don't zone out after five minutes. So, yeah. We're recording this during the COVID-19 crisis. Hopefully people are going to listen to this in weeks to come and think, oh, thank God that's over. Um, charities are experiencing more demand for their services right now. They're struggling to raise the funds uh, from their usual channels due to the uh, COVID-19 lockdown. In many cases, charities have reduced uh, resources, uh, both human and financial, with lots of people on furlough. Um, mm. Charities are looking at how they can develop video content easily and cheaply. 
how can video content help charities to engage their audience and widen their appeal? Right. And, you know, it's interesting. I've seen a real uptick in the amount of this kind of work in my organization, but just across the board. You know, if you're in service delivery and you usually hold workshops all across the world, in Spanish case, we work in 25 countries as a veterinarian education charity around um, uh, working animal welfare, both for animal welfare, but also for human development and um, or human livelihoods, rather, uh, importantly. I think it's much more about human livelihoods. Um, but they, um, a lot of the teams that would be in the field running workshops can't do that right now. So instead they're saying, well, how do we bridge that gap with video or audio or some other kind of tools? So suddenly teams that may not have relied as heavily on this are turning to it. And I think maybe a lot of people listening might have parts of the, their projects or their programs that need to be turned into a digital medium because there's just no other means um, I think the challenge right now is also we don't know exactly when the end point is so this may be just a new way of working it might be just the summer it could be that we have you know I think it's about future proofing so saying okay this may not you know be this this limit forever but how do we um, how do we make sure that if there is another spate of three months of lockdown internationally we can deliver whether you work in the UK or as an international organization so it's um, it's been quite a challenge because I'm sure a lot of people listening, it's not just staff are furloughed, it's that budgets might have been dramatically reduced and, you know, you're working. I know from, you know, it's been for me thinking, right, how do we get the same amount of content from 25 countries where we work, but with the limitations, as we know, that the charity sector has been hit by um, you know, an impact on fundraising. So I tend to break it into two bits of advice. They're sort of, if you have a very small budget and then if you have no budget, um, and the challenge also in the charity sector is small budget is very relative. And, you know, I think having no budget also sometimes means having a couple thousand pounds. It could also mean having 25 quid and nothing, you know, so, so it's really hard because sometimes a charity will say, well, you know, we only commissioned one film, but it was 80,000 um, pounds. But that, that might be the entire turn, you know, running budget for a smaller organization. Mm -hmm. So I tried to at the very beginning as I built the content team at Spana, we've been looking at how we can very slowly bring in cheaper means of doing things and then integrate those and then take a step up. It's sort of like we're, we're slowly kind of climbing that, that hill. So um, one of the first things, I mean, I, would it be helpful to give some resources? Is that? Sure, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I can, I can give some resources and then just some general rules for kind of overall yeah. so if you don't have if you have a small budget um you know we use something called blink.la which is a sourcing site um for freelancers so let's say you have a very small budget and you need to get a piece of you know a video interview from ghana and you need someone in Accra to get there and back without having to spend a lot of money on flying them in um these kinds of sites are really good for sourcing freelancers and they're really um effective they don't take a commission um some sites do but they tend to be a little bit more hands-on but if you're just trying to kind of say start from scratch with how you find people it's really good to look through those kinds of freelance sourcing sites um in the uk if you're a uk-based charity there's groups like mandy um sometimes also if you want a film to be good, but it doesn't have to have the production value of filming on kind of a high-end camera or red or something, you can look at things like, um, you know, people just entering the market, student film groups, 
they're getting stuff for their portfolio. You might not be able to pay the full day rate of someone who's been working for 20 years, but you can possibly get them to support you with that. Um, I always say, uh, and this is something I'd like to do a little bit more of, and it's actually a positive in some ways of COVID, is there are many cases where a Western-based filmmaker does not need to fly to the country. I mean, it's it's a lot of fun. It's interesting. But there are also a lot of talented people in this countries who speak um, local languages, maybe have an understanding of the local culture. So um, I really encourage and try to find local freelancers wherever possible. That's not always possible. Um, and sometimes the skills vary quite dramatically between someone who's been doing it for 20 years and has access to all the kit and someone in a small village. But, you know, I think there are a lot of, as this technology becomes more accessible, as a lot of the camera bodies and lenses become more accessible, IBM seen more and more of those kinds of uh, filmmakers coming onto the scene. Um, I'd always recommend leading with the budget and working backwards from uh, their day rate, whether it's a filmmaker, an audio engineer, or an editor. And I think people sometimes forget the editor. Um, I, I'm an editor by training. And uh, whether it's, if it's documentary, the story kind of comes together in the edit. Um, but even if you have an idea of what you want to say and you've got a storyboard, editing takes a lot longer than people think. It, it's not like a Word document. You have to really play around with a lot of different elements. So if someone says they're 250 pounds a day and you know that there's a project that you don't know about the number of days it'll take, but you know that it needs to be completed and it needs to be this length and it needs to go on these platforms. It's really worth saying to the freelancer, look, this is what I need to do. How would you advise we go about this? Is there a way that you can do maybe a less intensive job, but enough on your budget? Because having been a freelancer, I don't want necessarily to be taken advantage of in terms of my day rate. You know, you, you spend a lot of time to get there and a lot of investment equipment. At the same time, charities really don't have that kind of wiggle room. So it's trying to find a happy medium and uh, a compromise, because um, I think everyone's heart is in the right place when they work on these projects, but it's just making sure everyone feels like their, um, their skills are being honored. Mm. And then there's also things like, audio is a really interesting one. I, I um, It tends to be something that you think about as a last step, but I often edit films to the audio track, so the music leads the entire film. And if you think of really good commercials or really good kind of uh, nonprofit films, sometimes music isn't that obvious, but it's what really makes you feel an emotive level. So if, if you take a really popular track, there's going to be a licensing fee. You can't just put it out on social media. It will be taken down. So um, websites like Artlist are really helpful. They are a subscription. I think it's somewhere around 100 US dollars, but um, they are great because it's unlimited tracks. And if you produce a lot of content to find, you know, feed all those channels, you can pay annually and just use audio as much as you want without having to worry about the licensing and then there are things like it's not just video if you're using um infographics social posts quotes overlaid on images um animation is probably the hardest one because that is so time intensive there are sites like fiverr and people per hour which host editors animators social media managers um uh, voiceover artists bloggers so those are really good place to find people based on your budget um, but usually what happens is you find a couple freelancers and then they become your go-to people and there are no surprises you know what their budget is you know what they charge and they know what your budget is but probably a little bit more creatively when you have no budget um, and, and often people are not just content manager you know there's a luxury to, to be a content manager um, exclusively you know people and I certainly have these jobs where you're a communications manager and fundraising manager and marketing manager and you know um, you just don't have that time so um, these are some kind of simple 
free tools that I would recommend. There are lots of apps for video and photo editing um, where you can even put on um, filters. In something like Lightroom, when I'm editing photos, it takes a long time to get everything balanced, but you can also kind of budget if you have five minutes to put together a picture. Things like Pixel Loop we use a lot, which helps you animate images. Um, you can crowdsource content, which we can talk about a little bit later, but crowdsourcing from your staff, volunteers, especially with the help of smartphones, is probably what everyone's doing right now, um, smartphones and Zoom. Um, so we were starting to experiment with video diaries from our staff, daily life content, that kind of stuff. You know, just because it doesn't look slick doesn't mean it's, it's bad. In fact, sometimes people really resonate with that because mm -hmm. it doesn't look like you spend an entire budget exclusively on a film. It's very much from the field to YouTube or to Facebook and it, it feels very immediate. Um, There's a level of authenticity with, the, with that kind absolutely. of video as well, is there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, um, there's some really interesting stuff you can read up on, and I, I'm sure some of the, your other guests have talked a little bit about, um, you know, the different tropes and the different narratives you can, you can follow in terms of storytelling. But, um, you know, often having someone who's sort of a hero or focus or the hero's journey, um, let's say you, and obviously there, there are challenges with this because you need to make sure that these people have, give full consent and uh, they're, they're happy with how they're being represented on screen. But um, often we focus on the animals, but sometimes it's good to talk about the veterinarians in the field who are working in lockdown in places like Morocco and Tanzania and follow kind of the hero's journey of the challenges they face and how will they overcome them. But they are very authentic and um, every, you know, at least a UK audience knows what smartphone content looks like and can, it really kind of clicks with a part of their brain where they're so used to watching the kind of content anyway. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, yeah, I think it's, um, it's probably a good thing to be forced into that because the filmmaker me wants to say, I want high res 4k 50 frames per second, slow motion. I really want it to look like crisp and beautiful. Sometimes actually our best performing videos, I hate to say this are just like, um, an animal being filmed in the center on a smartphone and it's shaky and it's grainy, but people love it. Well, I mean, now, now a lot of these smartphones um, have got 4K capability, haven't they? I know yeah. the iPhone 11, Google Pixel, Samsung Galaxy S10, and, and various others have, have kind of come out with the 4K. But is that enough? I mean, could if I'm a complete amateur videographer, you know, I, I do it for holiday videos and things like that. And and that's what I've got is my phone or maybe a GoPro. But yeah. you know, can you get a decent video out of just using that and pointing and shooting? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can cover a little bit about that later. But, you know, as long as you can stabilize it, as long as you, I think more the challenge, uh, which you can work around easily, is just audio. But, um, yeah, absolutely. I know I'm not a huge phone expert, but I know some have, like, 100 frames per second. They have the shutter speed that allows you to really slow down footage. Um, it depends on the platform where you're posting it because often you can do a 4K film, but it's being viewed on Facebook at a compressed quality. Yeah. So sometimes I, I think there's even 8K now and like, you know, there, there's, there's much higher resolution or there is 8K now. It, it, I think a lot of, you get a bunch of, of film buffs in a room and we can tell kind of the different, you know, the gimbal shots being used and where there's a drone and, and often, I feel like everyone else is just like, that was a good film. I enjoyed that, but they can't tell you why. And I just think, well, 
Okay. So, so there's the, the nerdiness on that side. And I, I wouldn't disparage that because it's important to keep that quality for the right kinds of films. But, but yeah, I would say absolutely. And, um, you know, it depends what you're filming. I think if you're doing like, uh, you know, holding a, a selfie video to talk about the challenges of maybe providing youth homelessness services on the street or something, um, even if it isn't 4K, it's absolutely fine. The audio is something you want to make sure is, is good. And then there's stuff like subtitling or text on screen. But, but yeah, generally, if you have an iPhone, you can, you can produce content. Um, and it's also your, your kind of branding and, and the vibe of your videos will become as long as you make sure that you have a good sense of what your brand is for the film. So don't go all over the shop with different fonts and different color grades and different, different shots. If you keep a consistency to the kind of phone video you produce, that in itself is part of a bigger picture of communications you need to invest in. So, um, so yeah, I think anyone can go out there. And uh, I figure if YouTube stars and TikTok stars can make millions off of producing film videos, you know, I, you can do it for charity with your phone. It is important to stress that um, phone content doesn't replace professional experts who've been spending their their entire professional life developing skills in this because it's a very different piece of content you'll get and certainly for like commercial grade stuff you couldn't use an iphone um but but if it's kind of the 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 fodder that you eat through so quickly in social media you need a new piece of content every day possibly multiple pieces of content sometimes the luxury of being able to produce a beautifully crafted film for each one you know, it's better to put your budget into where you know it can absolutely do the biggest, have the biggest impact and get the most views and the most um, click-throughs to your website because sometimes beautiful charity videos don't necessarily have the desired effect. You know, it's, it's a tool. So how are you going to use it? What, what is the ultimate K, KPIs or what you hope to achieve from this? So, um, you know, it's not, it's, it's not a bad film if it works. Mm. <laughs> you know, in any respect. So, um, so, and that's true for also, you know, um, you can also use stuff like Canva for photo, I mean, Photoshop and InDesign uh, graphic designers. Those are really important for brand awareness and building identity. But, you know, if you need to put a quick text overlay or a graphic over an image, things like Canva are free. Uh, you can get a premium service, but they're really good. Um, and sometimes, if I need to resize an image or something, I'll, I'll more likely go to Canva than like Photoshop. Um, I'd also recommend like, you know, if there's something you don't know about, you said you, you don't know much about iPhone uh, filming. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many things I've, I've basically said I'll do for a production and then quickly Google search and learn how to do, you know, necessity is the mother of invention here. So there are training sites like Linda, which you're subscription-based and they do whole tutorials and they've been great for understanding different focal lengths and lenses. But, you know, you can also just go onto YouTube and type in, you know, how to get the best footage out of my iPhone and there'll be all these tips and tricks. Um, so I would say if you're short on money, but there's a little bit of wiggle room. I know furlough people can't work for their organization at the moment, but if you do find that there's a lull, this is the time to go in online and teach yourself. And it may be that down the line you need more technical training, but this is a good, you need to start somewhere. So, you know, I'd say if you don't know anything, just start Google searching, you will find resources. What I would say is, and this is with the caveat that 
having an editor in house is really, really helpful. So as myself and my colleague Jordan, we're both editors, we can repackage. So if we shoot 10 hours of film, we can repackage that as five, six different films. If you have a production house producing something, you may not be able to, and you don't know how to edit, you may not be able to change the overlay, the text or the, the stings, which is like the intro and outro of, of the video. So um, it's really helpful if you're thinking about how you kind of upskill down the road, I'd always recommend having someone who has a content, I would say this one does, but has a, a content background in repackaging content, uh, editors, um, people who are kind of confident in Photoshop, those kinds of things, because then you can really squeeze everything out of one or two pieces of content, whether that's a case study or a video. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I'd also say there's some idea, what you're doing now with podcasts, that's a really good way to kind of work completely around the film side um, with just audio. And I think podcasts are absolutely on the rise at the moment. Um, but, you know, I'd say, what you can always do when you're producing this on no or small budget is check your analytics, see what's working, what's not, see how people respond to things. Again, I've spent, you know, weeks producing really beautiful films while I hope they're beautiful films and they get like, you know, 10,000 views, but then we'll put a, we put a, a shot of a donkey being winched out of a, of a septic tank in Botswana. And it, it was one of our best performing yeah. videos. And it was shot on iPhone. It was shot by my colleague, uh, Pippa in Botswana. And uh, yeah, that was, that was humbling, but you know, it was good to know what, what audiences want because then we can produce more. Mm -hmm. um, well, cause you need to give a variety presumably. Do you? I mean, if you, if you had absolutely. that video, you know, replicated again and again and again, you would start to see a drop off of interest. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And you're saying different things to different audiences. You know, you might say to pure animal lovers, we've helped this animal. You know, what you'd say to someone who's interested in human rights and development is, well, you know, these are means to an end for people who, you know, are often overlooked by government support, you know. Um, so how is this about livelihood, support and retention? Um, so different films. And then there's also, you know, if you're producing content that's more for a technical audience, like veterinarians or policymakers, totally different way of communicating but, but yeah there, there has to be diversity and it has to also importantly be put on the channels where you know those audiences are mm. so i wouldn't necessarily put something that's more policy based on facebook because i don't think our audience wants that but that's why the more you know about your audience and you can have a good sense of who you're talking to the more it may not be your specific taste in a film necessarily but it will be the right one for the people receiving it um, and then you know thinking about how you're screening it um, you know a little tip like we always produce social facebook videos are always 1080 by 1080, which is just a perfect square, um, because that's what Facebook prioritizes right now. Yeah, so um, again, that's why editors are really helpful is because they can repackage things for different um, dimensions. Um, so, you know, in, in terms of analytics, if you know your audience watches stuff on their way to work on their phone, produce content that's, that's portrait and not landscape, make sure it's subtitled, because that way you don't have to put on headphones when you're in, on public transport it's understanding the behaviors around that yeah and also it's an accessibility thing as well isn't it if people uh, need to have and, and i use subtitles and everything even though my my hearing's well my wife would tell you differently but my hearing's <laughs> usually pretty fine um but uh, i know that that's kind of a preference a lot of people have and again if uh, people are maybe watching videos where they shouldn't be at work you know again yeah <laughs> yeah. you know, if it's my video then they're, they're welcome to watch it at work but yeah, absolutely if someone's hearing impaired that's that's incredibly important i want to make sure that everything you produce is 
as accessible as, as possible. Um, you know, when we, we kind of do alt text on images, that's in part for SEO purposes, but also, you know, you can kind of, someone's got a reader for, for um, vision impairment, those yeah. kinds of things. You want to make sure that it's as um, accessible as possible. I am also, you know, this is more of a discussion. Uh, this is separate to kind of filmmaking, but, you know, when I'm going to countries and interviewing people and making sure I get their consent written and on video, also, how can they access it? Because I want to make sure that these communities are seen. Mm. We're, we're now finding a challenge if we're looking at, like, um, communicating to local stakeholders, um, like talking to a group of Ethiopian school children, what are the right tools for video for that? Because um, also I think, you know, I'm talking about all of this in terms of Western audiences because that's where we tend to fundraise from, but it really depends. And I, I think this is a really important thing to highlight. The films that you produce have to be aimed at, you know, the end user. So I'm talking more generally about comms and fundraising purposes. Mm -hmm. But if you're producing films to teach someone about, I don't know, um, public health or, you know, uh, antenatal care, something like that, you know, also think about how people are have access to information. Do they have smartphones? I mean, not always. Um, you know, radio programs and in development studies, you know, a lot of it is looking at how can we get the information to people who might not be literate, who might be in very rural areas who might not have access to electricity so making sure it's in um, when doing stuff for training you know always make sure that it's in regional languages not just the lingua you know um, not maybe not just Swahili but make sure it's a local language um, you know making sure that it's maybe radio programs or that it's very visual. Um, so doing those kinds of assessments, if you know you need to get a certain group of stakeholders to do X by the end of this training, making sure that they're actually speaking to them because there's no point in doing a 4K video on a smartphone and assuming that, you know, a, a small Maasai community is gonna even have access to that. So being sensitive to those kinds of things. Um, but right now, what I'm kind of talking about is more in terms of fundraising for, for West, you know, UK and, and American Australian audiences. But um, the thing is video film making for charities is a really broad spectrum. As many ways as there are to communicate what you do to different people, there are different tools for producing those films. Um, but yeah, absolutely, things like subtitling are so important um, for every audience, really. Talk about audio as well, and I think that's something that uh, certainly with my um, amateur video making that I've, I've uh, embarked on in the past, that's probably been the biggest challenge. I mean, are there some kind of hints and tips for getting good audio cheaply? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in terms of iPhones. Sure. Or, or GoPros or anything like that. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this might take a little bit of investment. When I say a little bit, it would certainly be all under about a hundred pounds, um, but you can get some much cheaper audio for, you know, and, you know, I tend to, there's different ways with cameras. You can take audio from a lapel mic, which you clip to your shirt or a boom mic and run it into a, um, a kind of recorder that is very, very high definition. Yeah. But you know, you have voice memo on your phone or the equivalent. There's lots of apps um, which allow you to get really good quality sound. Um, and then you just plug in a into the jack um, a, a cheap mic. I, I use Sennheiser, but Rhodes is really good, so R-H-O-D-E. 
But if you go on Amazon as well or any any websites, there'll be lots of small clip-on audio. Um, you know, some tips and tricks just generally uh, in terms of filming for iPhone. You know, you want to make sure you're not near any busy roads. If you can avoid like bird song, because a decibel for that really picks up in audio. Yeah, really? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So it's often you know, especially on Zoom calls as well, you'll hear kind of birds coming in. That's why um, whenever I'm on one of these, I have to kind of soundproof as much as possible. Okay. Um, lapel mics are really good if you're doing interviews, so they clip just onto your shirt. Um, and just make sure you don't have any heavy jewelry or your hair is not rubbing against it. Um, and they tend to come with something that buffers the uh, wind. So if it's a very windy day, it's really hard to if you're editing any of that, you can't really disengage your voice from the wind because it's constant. Um, so just be aware of your environment. That's the most important thing. Make sure you're not near like, um, I once did an interview right next to a generator and that was just a nightmare. You know, the best way to learn about what doesn't work in audio is get some terrible, I've got like this horror house of the worst shots and worst audio I've collected. And some of it I still just am so ashamed about, but it's good to know because you don't actually think about these things until, you know, you're actually working with it. I find often um, with interviewing people with an iPhone with audio, if you hear a plane go over or a really noisy car, it's absolutely fine to say, sorry, can we just wait um, mm -hmm. and try that again when it's passed. So even with an iPhone, um, it's not great because usually with a, with a camera, you can have headphones into it, into a jack to hear what the camera is picking up. But you're going to have to kind of, um, depending on what, what mic you use, you might have to overcompensate by just being almost hyper vigilant to what's mm -hmm. going on in the background because it will pick it up. Um, and when you're, if you're splicing an interview together, if there's any discrepancy in audio, interestingly, the human brain is much more aware of bad audio than bad visuals. So if you have, um, you know, if you have unworkable sound, that's so much worse than, you know, maybe not the right lighting. So, um, that's why sound recorders are always, uh, un unsung heroes, um, of, of film production, but they're really important. Um, but yeah, if you look online, uh, if you know you're doing a lot of interviews, let's say lapel mics are great. If you know you're doing um, more general shots, uh, omnidirectional, it's called an omnidirectional shotgun mic. Uh, it's basically just a handheld mic. Um, and you should be able to just plug it into your phone and record. You'll know you're recording it because you'll see the audio levels going up and down. But that's really, really helpful for um, maybe something where you're jumping between people and you don't have time to change out the lapel mic. When you're in this field, there are a lot of hacks. There are a lot of things, yeah, tips and tricks. Yeah. What I would say for shooting on traditional cameras, I shoot on something called a Sony a7S, but, um, and that's a higher, kind of more professional camera, but let's say you're working with, um, I have an iPhone 7, and I occasionally shoot on that, uh, mainly videos of my chickens, it's not that exciting, but um, if you know you're doing something for an advocacy story or, or fundraising or to talk to stakeholders, you know, make sure you storyboard. I think that's something that people don't really do, they don't really think about, and I, I'm guilty of this too, I don't necessarily plan out shots. If you're doing a general fly-on-the-wall documentary, um, you can still have a rough idea of what you want to shoot. You know, it doesn't have to be frame by frame, but um, it is really, really helpful to say, well, you know, um, I know I'm going to be shooting on this location for the morning. I'm going to be interviewing this person. Always allow a little bit more time because things run over. Um, people need to try things again, especially when you're talking about audio. You're going to need to 
uh, maybe have a couple attempts. So just have a rough idea, uh, sometimes just a shot list of these are all the shots I want to get. And it becomes like the scavenger hunt from hell, especially when you're in the middle of like, I don't know, um, Northern Kenya as I was, and I had to have like uh, up on the South Sudanese border and you need to get like 20 shots, people saying very specific things. And it became the worst scavenger hunt to try to get that all recorded in 40 degree heat. But that, that keeps it in your mind because when you're on location, it's really hard to replicate. If you're doing this from home, it might be easier. But if you go out with a, a camera, you're taking people's time, you're taking your own time. So just making sure you, you bring back everything. Think of it as hunting and gathering. You're bringing back everything you need to, to make it into something bigger than some of its parts. Really. Well, in those situations, Anna, are you are you having to almost feed people lines, or are you trying to um, I mean, open questions? But then I suppose the risk is you'll get a lot of content you're going to have to edit, and it'll take more time to edit it down. So. Yeah, I mean, you know, interview techniques, uh, uh, both kind of more journalistic, and then when you know there's something when you're interviewing someone in journalism, you're looking to keep the answers in a way that allow them to kind of you're teasing out information. Mm-hmm. I know when working in charities, there might be a specific quote you need them to say you know and that's a different way of questioning i mean general rules for asking if you're doing an interview um just never ask any trying to avoid asking questions that can be answered in yes or no so um did you have a good day it's very different than can you tell me a little bit about how your day went Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really important if you're interviewing people who you've not met before, build up the rapport beforehand. You know, don't go straight into filming if you can help it. Often I, I don't have that opportunity. I have to jump out of a, a Jeep and, and film someone quickly by the side of the road. But, you know, if you can spend a lunch with them, make them feel comfortable because a lot of it is just you know, um, making sure that people feel like they can be themselves and their genuine self because that will make for better content. And you have to walk a very fine line of not exploiting people by, you know, being obsequious or, or indulging, you know, being, being overly friendly just to get the right quote. But you want to make sure that people feel they're in control of their, their image on, uh, in visuals. So, you know, that's why a lot of interviewers, um, are either really good at making people feel comfortable or really good at making them feel uncomfortable and then they get a response from that. But, you know, it's worth watching people, you know, documentarians online or like when you're listening to podcast interviews, listen to how the, not just the person being interviewed, but the interviewer, because that will give you a lot of insight. Um, you know, I tend to try to recognize, um, so I interviewed a, a Maasai woman in Tanzania about donkey thefts. And, you know, I could have talked about donkeys, but really what I imagine a 34-year-old woman with a couple kids that was worried about is her children's well-being and making sure she can provide for them. So you kind of start to get, dance around the issue to the bigger underlying fears, hopes, dreams, because everyone has them. And it's it's the most authentic part of someone, what someone is. If someone's really passionate about something, you can tell. And they can go off and I'd rather they speak for an hour and I have to edit it than I don't have enough. Um, but as I'm sure you'll know from, you know, editing podcasts, it's, it's a challenge. Just be aware that I would recommend if you're doing a five minute video to get at least two hours worth of content to edit down from, just give yourself options. You can get away with, with um, less, but you know, it's good to have those options. You'll notice, um, 
In reality TV interviews, people tend to be kind of narrating, you know, I did not see that coming or I can't believe that happened. You notice they're in the same outfit and that's for continuity. They, they need to be in the same outfit. So, oh, uh, right. yeah. so also presenters online, you might find that it's not a sequential development of their day or their, their travels. They may have gone back to something or this might have happened much earlier. But if you can try to get some continuity, it allows you to you're filming for the edit or you're recording for the edit. Always think about the edit, which is um, even when I've not been the camera person, sometimes I just go on shoots because I want to make sure I know what's happened so I can sequentially construct it later. So your brain starts to become better at thinking, okay, this looks fine on video now, but how am I going to make a story out of this down the line? And what extra quotes could I get, even if they're off camera, which might help move the story along? Mm. That kind of stuff is really helpful. Anything where you're silhouetted against a window and there's bright light coming in, you have something called a blowout. And basically your, your shot can be saturated with light and the camera doesn't quite know how to balance it. Lighting is, again, people are lighting experts and that's all they do is look at lighting and shadow and how light falls on people. And, you know, without having um, light, a whole light rig, which is heavy and difficult to carry and also expensive, if you're trying to use natural light, which is what I normally do, uh, for photo or video. I, you know, you angle someone into the light so to replicate uh, um, uh, softbox lighting to give people kind of more even look. I tend to, if it's very bright light and I need to do a portrait, move someone into a, a doorway, a frame, because that helps even the, the lighting and it helps to kind of add some depth and it gives me more to play with. Um, it's always better when you're shooting film or photo and you have the opportunity to, to play around with, um, it's called ISO, it's how you pick up the light. Make sure that you try to underexpose as opposed to overexpose. Because basically what a phone is doing is taking all this data and when you edit it, it might be that it's lost in the really bright kind of on a, on a graph, it might be lost on the very bright side. So you want to make sure that you can pull some of that back from the dark, from the shadows in editing if that's an option. Um, there's also something called like guerrilla filmmaking, which I'd really recommend people look up online on YouTube. Just, um, you know, you can spend 800 quid on a gimbal, which is like something that essentially stabilizes shots. Um, or you could possibly, for a very simple shot, use a wheelie chair and prop up an iPhone and slowly pan it. You know, basically what you're replicating with a gimbal as well as a dolly, um, yeah, it, it's kind of a, a tracking shot. You've got movement and it's smooth. So there are ways to do these things on the cheap. Um, I've seen people do like a lens flare setting fire. I don't recommend this. Please don't try this at home. But they can try a lens flare by setting fire to a CD and it kind of glints off the CD. I mean, there's, there's all these really cool hacks and there'll be some kid who's basically like 15 and knows more than me about all of this who's already found ways um i saw one kid he's like 20 but he he'd gotten the same kind of movement shots that i use with a gimbal on a skateboard and he just kind of held himself very solid yeah. um there's also when you're shooting there are different techniques you can take for how you hold the camera so that you you mitigate for shake because that kind of stuff is distracting um and then there's lots of apps if you're doing it on your phone there are lots of apps for overlaying text so if you need to say you know the website at the bottom of a video you can usually do that in the app and it, it might be like a five pound fee but you know you have that app forever
Yeah. Um, I'd also say just be consistent whether you're shooting portrait or landscape. And landscape is long, portrait is like tall. Um, make sure that you have some consistency just so it's not all over the shop. Um, but um, I think also thinking about, and this kind of goes on to the other question you had, which is how you get the videos out there. Um, think about where you're going to be showing this. Um, and keep an eye on what kind of videos are doing well. So uh, I don't personally use TikTok, but a lot of the kind of ways of presenting information on TikTok or other kinds of so social media, Instagram is really helpful because um, obviously you don't ever, ever plagiarize, but you can get inspiration and maybe something that someone's doing might be adapted. So things like episodic videos, maybe you're following someone through a series, like you can do almost like a TV show, what's gonna happen next week, day in the life. Um, that's a new way of repeating a new way of, of presenting information that you might have been repeating over and over again. You know, I know every charity struggles with finding new ways of presenting the information they have. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, just think about your, your platform. Um, and finally, when you are putting stuff off up on, let's say YouTube, make sure you tag it, which means just enter in all the words you think people will search for. Um, because that is boosting your SEO, which is your search engine optimization. So then, people are trying to find your video and they type in a certain number of words. You want to eventually lead them to this video. And from the video, the purpose of why, why you're doing this in the first place is get traffic to your website. Um, so the click through, which is when people see your video, do they click on your messaging to your website? That's a good way of judging whether this was a successful video or not. Hannah Catchman, thank you for contributing to Charity Chat. Thank you. big thank you to Hannah Kaplan for sharing her knowledge and expertise with us. We know that the future is going to be difficult for everyone, especially smaller charities who may be needed more than ever and still have to find ways of reaching out to a bigger audience with next to no budgets in order to find support for their vital work. With video production becoming more relevant than ever, with being able to use devices that most of us now have and carry with us, such as smartphones or perhaps GoPros or even laptops and free channels such as social media where we can put our content and encourage people to watch it and support us from it. Um, it's becoming more viable and a viable marketing and supporter engagement tool. So if we can put our time and effort into better quality videos, tighter productions, and more meaningful content, could we compete against commercial marketeers, including YouTubers, uh, more focused on pushing themselves and their own brands than meaningful change in a lot of cases for the most vulnerable in our society and the causes that matter most to us? Instead of audiences buying designer clothes, could they be buying into our cause? Instead of saving money on holidays, could they be helping us to save the environment? The power of video is compelling and certainly an area that I hope to see develop with charities demonstrating both the need and the change that our work can accomplish. I think we owe it to those we're trying to help. In fact, I think we owe it to our supporters and society at large. Could a step towards a better world be triggered by the next charity video that shows the aspirational side of humanity? Maybe. Uh, these are certainly difficult days and I hope that you and your families are keeping safe and well 
and also see rays of hope ahead. From all of us here at Charity Chat, thank you for continuing to listen and support us with your feedback. We really appreciate it. We'd also like to thank our corporate sponsors, Giant Squid Audio Lab, for sponsoring our podcast kit. Magda Axmit for the beautiful website design. Please do check it out, charitychat.org.uk. RR Yard Photography for the lovely pro bono images on our website. And of course, Forest of Fools, who have been playing throughout the show and are playing us out right now. Keep on and do what you can. Thanks for listening. Speak to you soon. Cheerio. Bye-bye.